Last week, we unpacked verses 17 through 21 of chapter 5, where Paul had quite a bit to say about relating to the elders in our church without partiality or favoritism. You may remember that title. Remember, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gave specific instructions to Timothy about how he could and should choose men and women to serve as deacons and men who would serve as elders there in the church at Ephesus. And that's why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it was important to Paul that he lay out the qualifications of an elder. It was Timothy's job to train them and choose them, and uh, that's why Paul laid out those qualifications. And that's also why in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it was important to Paul that he lay out what to do when an elder made sinful choices that disqualified that man from continuing to serve as an elder. And as we've made our way through 1 Timothy, we've noted that that Paul bookended those three chapters with some very forceful language. In 1 Timothy 3.1, where Paul laid out the qualifications of an elder, in most translations, he uses the word must. He says that if anyone desires to be an elder in the church, that's a really good thing to desire. But that's when Paul uses the word must to indicate that simply wanting the job is not enough. It's not enough to just want the job to be an elder. If a man desires to be an elder, he must meet certain qualifications before he can be ordained. And I've challenged men uh, down through the years that, that, you know, I believe God could use you in this role, but there are some things that you're going to need to deal with before you qualify yourself to serve in this role. Are you willing to do that? And And then we begin to disciple one another and and challenge one another. If a man desires to be an elder, he must meet the qualifications. And that's why when we're ordaining elders in our church here at the Potter's House, we don't consider Paul's words in in, uh, 1 Timothy 3 to be be, uh, suggestions. We consider Paul's words to be requirements. We believe that we are required to make sure that there are people ordained as deacons, men and women as deacons, and and men as elders, and and the the role of leading the church falls to them. They initiate, and and, uh, this morning, uh, by by the time we're done, I'm hoping that you're not going to feel trapped by that or sit there and think, well, the elders can just do anything they want. No, they can't. No, they can't. They are subject to your approval as they go, and and we'll see how that works. A man who wants to be an elder in our church must meet the qualifications of an elder, and if he does not meet the qualifications of an elder, he must not be ordained into that role to serve in that capacity. There are no gray areas in this. Paul speaks in black and white when he speaks of the qualifications. And in the same way, once a man has met the qualifications of an elder and been ordained to serve, if the day ever comes that he no longer meets the qualifications of an elder, then he must be removed from serving in that capacity in our church. And the other bookend for this idea came our way last week as we worked through 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 21. You may remember from last week that Paul said that should the day come when a particular elder no longer meets the qualifications, then we are to rebuke that man publicly, and we are to do that without partiality or favoritism. In other words, we're to take action against an elder who's living in sin, and we are to do that regardless of how we feel about that elder. All that to say that Paul used definitive language when he talked about an elder getting or losing his job in the church. When it comes to an elder getting his job, he must meet the qualifications. And when it comes to an elder losing his job because of sin, we must 
take action, whether we want to or not, because of what Paul said in chapter 5. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect or the holy angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. God, Jesus Christ, and the holy angels all work together to hold us accountable to this principle and to make sure that only qualified men are ordained as elders and only qualified men continue to serve as elders. And last week we learned that we're to offer double honor to those elders who do their job well and that includes making sure that their financial needs are met. So we honor the elders who do their job well and we rebuke the ones who no longer meet the qualifications. And that means that as we said last week, an elder can both be ordained and removed from office, and in either case, we use the qualifications of an elder to help us to know who should be ordained and who should be removed. That's why we spent so much time this summer talking about the qualifications and how a man qualifies himself. So, if it happens that you come to the place where you believe that I or one of the elders should be removed then you're free to raise that issue with the other elders. You're absolutely free. But the elders will require at least two things of you when you make the accusation. You must tie the accusation to the qualifications. That's the first one. In other words, you may think that it's boring to listen to me week after week when, I'm, when I stand up here to teach, but that in and of itself won't be enough to prompt the elders to remove me from my job. Uh, take away the privilege that I have of teaching on Sunday mornings. They may take action. They may sit down with me and say, Jay, you got to step it up a little bit. Or, you know, they, people are bored out there and they're falling asleep. And, and, you know, sometimes I just provide a good nap for you. That, uh, that's, that's a morning well spent for me. I, not really. I guess, you know, I, I work hard to help to understand this. But, but if I'm just being boring and, and you bring that accusation up, they're going to go back and look at the qualifications, and that's not one of the qualifications. It doesn't say he must not be a boring speaker. On the other hand, if I were to lose my temper and beat you up, that, that would be enough to have me removed from my role as a teacher in, in this church. And I, and I say that because if I lost my temper and beat you up, it wouldn't matter whether you deserved it. Or not. That wouldn't occur to the elders. But keeping my temper and not beating people up are some of the things that qualify me to teach here on a Sunday morning because the qualifications require me to be not violent but gentle, right there in the qualifications. And that's what we mean by tying the accusation to the qualifications. That's one of the things the elders are, are going to be looking for. So if you believe an elder should be removed, you should make sure that you refer to the qualifications as you have the discussion with the elders. But as we saw last week, there's more to it than that. If I were to beat you up, for example, that's something that would disqualify me. But if there are no witnesses to what I did, I would for the time be protected from your accusation. In the past, I found myself in the middle of situations, literally, I'm not making this up, too many situations where someone in ministry in the church is being accused by someone else of behavior that would disqualify him. In Every case where an accusation has been brought to me like that, I make sure to ask whether there's anyone who can corroborate the accusation, who can actually attest to the accusation. When there is someone who has seen what happened, I, I always want to talk to them before I bring the issue to the elders. When there is not someone who has seen what is, what's happened, I've gone to the church leader who's been accused personally. 
to ask him if the accusation is true. And I can tell you, quite frankly, these are, you know, these are men of integrity. And I can tell you, quite frankly, in every case where I've done that, the church leader has admitted to the accusation, and the church leader then becomes a witness against himself. But if the church leader denies the accusation and there are no witnesses to what happened, then the hands of the other elders are tied. They cannot move against the elder who's been accused if the accusation is being brought by only one person and there are no witnesses. And I know that may sound unfair to the one who's making the accusation, but without witnesses, it would be too easy to remove an elder just because I don't like him. All I'd have to do is accuse him of doing something that he didn't do. And that's why... There must be witnesses before we can entertain any accusation against an elder. Any accusation. In the end, we want all of you to be safe and to feel safe, but we also don't want to remove an elder unjustly. And that's why we will always require witnesses to any accusation. And I hope that by this review, you, uh, you've been able to, I've been able to reassure all of you, we've been able to reassure all of you, because we don't want any of the elders to victimize any one of you. I promise that. We do not want any of the elders to victimize any one of you. But we also don't want any... <coughs> excuse me. We also don't want any one of you or anyone else to victimize any of the elders. Enough said? Yeah. What are you going to say? Good. Let's get to unpacking this next passage. And as you know, we always begin unpacking a passage by reading the passage aloud together. So if you would, please stand with me and as we read aloud together from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 22 to 25. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. Thank you. You can take your seats. Thankful for God's truth. This morning, as always, I want to tell you a story from God's Word. And today the story comes from something that happened in the days immediately after Jesus rose from the dead, and days and weeks immediately after Jesus rose from the dead. In order to be able to fully understand what, what's about to happen this morning, we need to remind ourselves of something that Jesus said one day when he was teaching his followers, his first followers. One day when he was talking to them about what, what it would cost them to follow him. In Luke 9, 61 and 62, he says, Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but... First, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Before I say anything else, I want us to see that the man approached Jesus and said that he would follow him. That was what the man said. And Jesus immediately tied that statement that he made to service in the kingdom of God. In Jesus' mind, those two things were in parallel. They were the same thing. In Jesus' mind, following him and serving in the kingdom were one and the same because he served the kingdom. 
And having said that, to be clear here, Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't say goodbye to your family if the day comes that you decide to follow him and, and serve the, him in the kingdom. I mean, I don't want to hear next Sunday, well, I won't be here next Sunday, but I don't want to hear when, I'm, when I get back that that's one of the teenagers has just left to serve Jesus somewhere and he never did say goodbye to us. Don't do that, kids. That's not what this is talking about. Jesus is saying that the decision to follow him is a lifetime decision. No turning back, no looking back. You see, Jesus himself made a lifetime decision to follow the Father's will. And if we're going to be true followers of him, our decision to follow him must be a lifetime decision as well. And by that, we mean that Jesus never went back on his decision to obey the Father. So if we go back on our decision to obey him, then we really can't call ourselves his followers. It's not complicated, but it is agonizingly true. Jesus followed his Father for his entire life. Jesus followed his Father all the way to the cross where he died following his Father. Because Jesus never stopped following his father, then it naturally follows that we cannot call ourselves his followers if we at any point decide not to follow him, even if for only a short time. In other words, if we put our hand to the plow by agreeing to follow him, but then we look back, we're no longer worthy to be called his followers. Now, to keep this in the context of, the, of what we'll be looking at this morning, We have to remember that early in the book of John, we were told that in the upper room, uh, at least earlier than this story, uh, we were told that in the upper room, Peter had pledged to follow Jesus no matter what. Do you remember that? Even if it cost him his life, even if I have to die with you, I will follow you. And then that same night, Jesus was arrested. And while Peter initially fought to protect Jesus, he He eventually ended up in the courtyard of the high priest, and there in the courtyard he swore three times that he didn't even know Jesus. Peter denied Jesus three three times, or to use Jesus' terminology, Peter had put his hand to the plow when he agreed to follow Jesus, when he promised to follow Jesus, but then he looked back when he denied that he knew Jesus. So based on what Jesus has said, Peter was no longer worthy to call himself a follower of Jesus. And in fact, Jesus, when, when he tells Mary to, to have my followers go before me into Galilee, he says, tell my followers and Peter to meet me there in Galilee. Jesus has taken this seriously. Peter is no longer qualified. And that means that as this story begins this morning, Peter's still associating with the followers. He's with them, traveling with them, but he's disqualified himself from being known as a true follower of Jesus. So it remains to be seen what Jesus will do about that. Peter had tried to play it safe and had escaped the night of of Jesus' arrest. That was something that Jesus wanted. He wanted them to survive, even though he was going to lay down his life. But Peter only managed to escape by denying his Lord, by turning his back on his dearest friend. So the question is, Can Peter still follow Jesus, or is he out for good? The story for this morning will answer that question for us, and it'll help us to understand what happens to us when we fail like Peter failed. And what happens to a deacon or an elder who's been disqualified from serving in our church because of sin? As the story begins, the followers have gone fishing. And Jesus has miraculously filled their nets with fish, which prompted them all to understand immediately who that was standing on the shore. 
And bringing the boat to shore, Jesus and his followers had breakfast together. And the time has come to get moving again. And with that background, this is the story from God's word, from John chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. When they were finished eating, Jesus and his first followers went for one last walk together, as they had walked together so many times before. As they walked, Jesus turned to Simon Peter, who was walking beside him, and said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter responded to Jesus' question by saying, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. When Jesus heard Peter say that, he said to Peter, feed my lambs. Jesus asked the same question a second time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Again, Peter replied as he had the first time, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus replied, take care of my sheep. Then Jesus asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? It hurt Peter when Jesus asked this question a third time. But once again, he answered Jesus' question, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. To which Jesus replied, feed my sheep. Jesus then said something quite ominous. He said, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and, and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. We say that it's an ominous statement because Jesus is speaking prophetically here about how Peter would die. When Jesus said that, he repeated to Peter something that he had said, first said to him three years before. Follow me. And that's the story from God's word. Let's make sure we have the main sequence of events straight in our minds. Peter first met Jesus on the day or two after John the baptizer identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. This is back in John chapter 1. Peter then went back up to the Sea of Galilee to continue his fishing career. And the next day, Jesus left the Jordan River where John was baptizing, uh, down, and, and he made his way up to the Sea of Galilee uh, where Jesus sought out Peter. He goes up there to look for Peter, for Simon in particular. To make a long story so short, Jesus spoke to the crowds as he sat in the bow of Peter's boat, and, and then Jesus suggested that they launch out into the deep and drop the nets to catch some fish. There's so much to tell in this story, and I'm sorry to be skipping over the, the main points, but Jesus performed a miracle and, and provided a huge catch of fish, and at that moment, Peter got down on his knees. He got down on his knees in front of Jesus right there in the boat and said, Lord, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. You don't want to have anything to do with me. But Jesus didn't walk away from Peter. Instead, he challenged Peter to follow him. And he promised Peter that if you'll, if you'll follow me, I will teach you to catch people instead of fish. Peter made the decision right then and there to follow Jesus. But then, three years later, Peter threw all of that away when he denied that he ever knew Jesus. And by his denial, Peter disqualified himself from being able to call himself a follower of Jesus. But then again, to make a long story short, right after that, Jesus was crucified and he was buried and then he was raised again to life. And after all of that, he went for a long walk with his followers and had a conversation with Peter. And by the end of that conversation, Jesus once again challenged Peter 
to follow him. And Peter was restored. Peter was once again qualified to call himself a follower of Jesus. As three questions from Jesus undid the three times that Peter had denied that he was a follower of Jesus. And I want us to notice this pattern so that we can understand the part of the journey that we're on as we work through this part of 1 Timothy. Earlier in 1 Timothy, we took several Sundays to talk about how a man could qualify himself to become an elder. And during that time, we talked about the ordination process and what it means when we lay hands on a man as we together recognize that the man meets the qualifications and we agree that we'll submit to his leadership. And I can't tell you what it meant to me to see the moment finally arrive when those first elders were ordained right here in our church. That was powerful for me that day. I also can't tell you how it would break my heart if it became necessary to rebuke and remove one of the elders. That hasn't happened. Continue to pray that it won't happen. We would have to do it if it became necessary, but it would break my heart in that process. Um, and I can tell you without any hesitation that it, it, is, a heart, it is heartbreaking when, when a church is forced to take action against one of the men who's been leading the church. Inevitably, always, it's heartbreaking. At times like that, there's a question that always comes out. Once an elder has been removed, how long will it be until this man can be restored as an elder? Everybody wants to know that because everybody loves this guy and now he's not working anymore. How long will it be before he's able to function in leadership in our church again. And with every fiber of my being, I wish that there was an objective answer to this question. And by objective answer, I, I mean that I wish that the New Testament articulated how much time a man has to take away from leadership before we can restore him as a leader in the church. What I'm trying to say is that I, I wish there was a chart that would be so great if there was a chart that somewhere there in the New Testament, Paul seems like the kind of guy that would draw one up, but he, he never did for us. You know, a chart that, that would say, for example, if he gets drunk, then he needs to take three months off. Uh, or again, for example, if he's stolen money from someone in the church, well, then that's going to require six months. Or, and keeping in mind that these are just examples, if he's stolen money from the church itself, well, that's a bigger deal, so that's going to be nine months. And, and if he's had an affair, that would require one full year away from leadership in the church. If there was a chart that would make it that objective, then the other elders would have a much easier time deciding how much time, how long the man has to stay inactive how long it can be before he's restored to leadership in the church. But there is no chart. Because if we were to do things the way I've just described, you know, using a chart, then our church would resemble the justice system in our country. And our church would resemble the justice system in that we would be saying that the punishment has to fit the crime. We would be focusing on punishing the elders. But listen to me, nowhere... Nowhere in the New Testament are we given the permission to punish elders who sin and disqualify themselves. Nowhere in the New Testament are we given permission to punish members of our church. That is not the goal of the action that we'd have to take. In fact, church discipline is never about punishment. So remember, when we take action against an elder, we're not punishing them for their sin. Instead, this man had qualified himself as an elder, and then he did something that disqualified him as an elder, and now we're looking for a way that he can requalify himself once again so that he can once again serve as an elder in our church. What we're saying is we're not looking for a way to punish him. 
we actually begin to actively look for a way to restore him to his leadership role. When an elder sins and we're forced to take action against him, any action that we take should be aimed at two things. You can see them up there on the screen. The two things are the purity of the church and the restoration of the elder who has sinned. That needs to be at the center of any action that we take. Hold the other elders accountable to this. Now, of course, that's dependent upon what he's done. If, for example, he murders someone, please, I hope we never have to deal with that, but uh, that would certainly be disqualifying. But if he does murder someone, then the justice system in the United States or in the state of Missouri is going to take responsibility, and it is very likely that he will never be an elder in our church again. If he has an affair and leaves his wife to marry another woman, then that also becomes a sin that cannot be undone, and he will not be an elder in our church again. If he steals some money, but he's willing to admit that he's stolen the money and pay the money back with interest, it might be possible for him to become an elder again. Of course, there are a hundred other... How did this happen? There are a hundred other examples we could give, but what I'm trying to point out is that because it's not a system that allows us to punish an elder who has sinned, we really can't say that this kind of sin requires this much time before the man can lead again. Having said that, there's a simple answer to the question. When can this man serve in leadership again now that he's disqualified himself from the ministry? And that answer comes from, once again, remembering how the man got the job as an elder in the first place, right? He got to be an elder because we all agreed that he met the qualifications of an elder. He remained an elder up until the moment that we all agreed that he no longer meet the, met, meets those qualifications. And the other elders then asked him to step down. In other words, it's not a system that requires punishment. It's a system that requires trust. So to make it tangible, let's imagine that a man starts attending our church today, and over the next few months, he gains our trust I have 13 minutes to go, so keep your seatbelts buckled. I, we need to get through this. I cannot leave you here, all right? Um, I, and I'll just get going here. Um, he, he starts attending our church, and over the next few, few months, he, he gains our trust. If he gains our trust, the elders might put his name forward to become an elder here at the potter's house, and at that point, the elders will ask all of us, you know how it works. You've seen it happen here at the Potter's House. The elders will ask all of us if we agree that this man meets the qualifications of an elder. And when they ask that, they're asking if this man has gained your trust, if he's gained our trust. And if we all agree that he's gained our trust, the elders will ordain him and ask him to join them in leading our church. But then suppose the day comes a year later when we discover that this man's marriage is not what we thought it was, and we discover that because he asks his wife for a divorce. Now, I know that that's something that happens among church members all the time, but I'm saying this morning that it's different when it happens with an elder. Because one of the qualifications of an elder is that he is faithful to his wife. So if he decides he no longer wants to be married to her, that would be a breach of his faithfulness to his wife. Let's try to make that tangible. What I'm trying to say is that you've offered me your trust by allowing me to lead you in, into, the, into the truth from God's Word. If the day ever comes that I decide to leave my wife faith, then I would fully expect you to withdraw the trust you once had in me. 
And I would fully expect that you'd ask me to step down from the position of trust in which I now serve. And that would be a perfectly legitimate thing for you to do because I at first gained your trust by meeting the qualifications and then I squandered your trust. And here's something that I've learned over the years. It is much easier to gain a person's trust than it is to regain a person's trust once you've squandered it. It's much easier to gain the trust of the people in the church in the first place than it is to regain the trust of the people in a church once you've squandered it, once you've lost it, once you've thrown it away. And that means that it's much easier to qualify yourself to serve as an elder than it is to requalify yourself once you've disqualified yourself. And that begs the question, if I have your trust and then I squander your trust, how long will it take for me to regain your trust? And the answer to that question is simple, but it is still intangible. If I have your trust and then I squander your trust, how long will it take to regain your trust? Well, it will take as long as it takes, and that's the best thing that we can say. It'll take as long as it takes. And when the, my, my name is ever presented again as, a, as coming up here, they'll ask you if, if I meet those qualifications, and you'll have to look long and hard at the ch- decision I made to leave faith and Well, if that's been restored, that would be wonderful. But for those of you who might be wondering why we're doing this dance right now, I can tell you that it's because of where Paul has us at this point in this letter that he wrote to Timothy. He's told us how a man can qualify himself to lead in our church. He's also told us how that same man can then disqualify himself from leading in our church. He's he's told us how to honor a man who serves well as he leads in our church, and he's told us also how to remove a man from leadership when he sins. And I mean, this is sins fails to keep meet the qualifications. And let's not forget that the story uh, that we heard just a little while ago about Peter, Peter qualified himself to lead by choosing to follow Jesus. And then Peter disqualified himself by denying Jesus. And then after some time, Jesus restored Peter by allowing Peter to re-qualify himself. That's what those three questions were about. And this morning, Paul is going to tell us that when a man qualifies himself to lead us and then disqualifies himself by sinning, it is possible to restore him to leadership when he requalifies himself to lead. And the one caveat that Paul will give us is that we should not be hasty in restoring a man who once qualified himself and then disqualified himself. Look at verse 22. We'll go quickly through the verses here. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now the laying on of hands is symbolic of recognition. We mentioned that earlier. We're recognizing this person as a deacon. We're recognizing this man over here as an elder. And when we recognize or ordain someone, we are publicly giving our approval to that person as we agree together that they met the qualifications. And when we publicly agree to ordain someone, we are identifying ourselves with that person as we publicly offer them our support by laying hands on them. We stand before the group. We publicly announce that our confidence, that we have confidence in this person, and we publicly offer our trust as we ask them to lead. But what happens when they squander the trust that we've offered them? Well, Paul says that when that happens, we share in the sins of others. In other words, when I endorse someone and then wander into moral failure, their moral failure leaves a stain on me because I recommended them to others. 
And that's why Paul encouraged Timothy to keep himself pure from the stain that can come from ordaining someone too quickly. And that's also why Paul says that we should not be hasty in ordaining someone in the first place. And that would also apply to restoring someone to ministry. When we first consider ordaining a man to be an elder, Paul wants us to take the time that's necessary for that man to gain our trust. And the same thing would apply when we're working to restore a man as an elder. We need to take the time that's necessary for that man to regain our trust. And naturally, regaining trust that's been lost takes longer than gaining trust did in the first place. So we get to this next little part here. This is one of the more confusing verses in the New Testament. Not the most confusing, but one of the more confusing verses in the New Testament. But as we get to this next part, we need to remember that Paul wrote his, this letter, this particular letter, to an individual, not to a group of churches. He wrote it to an individual that he knew very well. Paul had been discipling Timothy and no doubt knew and understood Timothy's heart, and that's what prompted him to write this next little bit of advice that seems so out of context. Watch it. Look at verse 23. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Well, of course, you know, that's where you're going to go, right in between. Well, actually, he's, it feels like he's broken the thought, but I, I have some experience with discipling people over the years, and it's my opinion that Paul knew that Timothy had made a rule for himself that he would never drink any wine. That's my opinion for what it's worth. Still in those days, and, and in many places, sadly, uh, many places in the world today, the water that's available is not safe. In many places, you can get sick just by drinking the water. But if Timothy had made a rule for himself that he would not drink any wine, then there would be situations where he would be forced to drink contaminated water because this, believe it or not, they didn't have Coca-Cola back then. And so he would have, he, contaminated water would have been all that was available. Remember, Paul's dictating this letter. He's not writing it from a, an outline. And he's just said, keep yourself pure. Don't get messed up with this. And I'm, I'm sure it occurred to him, whoa, Timothy might just misunderstand this. I know Timothy's not drinking any wine. He's got this rule for himself. And he didn't want Timothy to get sicker by drinking contaminated water just for the sake of keeping this rule. But he's just said, keep yourself pure. So you, know, you can imagine both Timothy and Paul scratching their heads at that moment. And that's why he, uh, he says to him, hey, buddy, don't, don't just be a water drinker. Don't, don't do that. Drink a little wine from time to time for your stomach's sake, for your, your frequent illnesses. And having taken a moment to cover that point, Paul gets back to what he was talking about. He just told Timothy not to be hasty. In, in recognizing and ordaining uh, men, and, and, and that's why he's given him that advice. Paul was very experienced with seeing men rise to, to positions of leadership and then fall. We, unfortunately, are way too experienced with that. We've seen that happen from time to time. Some man, uh, he, he goes through seminary, and as he's going through seminary, he gets high grades, and, you know, he's very articulate, and he's very capable, and he's got seven years of training, and then he shows up, and, and before you know it, he's, you know, he's 24, 25 years old, and he begins to plant a church, and the church turns into a megachurch, and his gifts and his crowd-drawing ability, I mean, it just, it just all blossoms and explodes, and, 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 uh, and, well, unfortunately, the man's character didn't grow with his gifts, his abilities, and his accomplishments. And when a man's gifts, talents, and fame outrun his character, moral failure is never 
far away. It's never far away. But what happens? What happens when, when this guy fails morally in some way? Very often, the megachurch, they know that he's the guy that's bringing in the crowds, and so the megachurch will cover up what happened. The things that we cover up always come to light, and when the, when the world around it discovers it, well, then now they're forced to take action against this guy, and they may actually tell him that you're going to have to take some time off because this was a pretty serious deal. And uh, he doesn't agree. He doesn't agree to do that. He won't submit himself to recovering. He won't submit himself to requalifying himself. And so he resigns. The church is left burnt at that point. And what happens to that guy? Well, that church, that mega church three states away, they're, they're, ready to, they're ready to hire him regardless of what kind of reputation he brings their way because it's more important to have people come through the doors and put money in the offering than it is to maintain some level of integrity and purity among the leadership of the church. And I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be unkind, but there are a lot of churches out there that, that choose a pastor in the same way that a company chooses a CEO. They don't really care about his character as long as he provides proven leadership. And understanding this pattern... Uh, this is why Paul said the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. What does that say about a church that will hire a man without taking the time to wonder about the character flaw that led to the, failure in the, the moral failure in the first place? We have to be very careful. That's why we don't here at the potter's house send out for people to come and be, to become our pastor. We actually home grow them. We, we ask people to grow up in our fellowship, and they're the ones that provide leadership. Sometimes you know about a, bad guy's, a guy's bad reputation before he shows up. Uh, sometimes it, it, it doesn't show up until much later. But that's a good reason to not be hasty. Don't move too quickly, no matter how much quality seems to be there. Some people are good people. The same way good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. And, and here's the thing, you know, we're, we're not going to be hasty. Does that mean that we would skip over a No, we won't skip over a good person because, because we'll see their good qualities eventually. You guys, I, I know this about you. I've, I've known some of you for years and years and years. And, and some of you, I've watched you grow up for crying out loud, and I know the basic goodness that's there. And even when you try to hide it, teenagers, it still shines through. But we need to not be hasty. Here at the Potter's House, we, we want people of character to be leading us, and, and we don't want to cut corners. We want to make sure that our leadership is well-established because we don't want to have to come to the point where one of our elders falls into moral failure because that is always explosive within the church. The church chooses upsides and off we go. Let me read the passage to you. One more. Maybe that was boring, but I don't think you had time to get bored in that stretch right there. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them in the same way 
Good deeds are obvious. And even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. So take heart and don't be hasty. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, we, we're moved again this morning to just come into your presence and say, when we remember what you've done for us, we'll never turn back ever, anymore. God, we know that we can't make rules for ourselves that are going to last the rest of our lives, but in this moment right now, we want to come to you with open hearts and say that if we had, if we had a thousand lives, they would all belong to you because you've purchased us with the blood of Jesus. God, you've purchased others with the blood of Jesus, but they still haven't heard about that. And so we pray that you'd send us out from here into our community and around the world to get that job done. And God, we pray for our leaders. We ask, God, that you would keep them stalwart because the enemy knows that if he can take one of them down, he can take us all down. So, Father, thank you for the privilege that we have of being the church here in this place. And may our light shine, God here in our community and around the world. For the sake of your glory, we ask these things and for the good of those who are still waiting to hear what we have to say. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen and amen. Um, we're going to do the... I actually had thought about singing a song, but we won't, we won't do that. No, it's not your fault, Curtis. I just ran out of time. Um, it's an old song we used to sing when I was a kid. I'll sing that and then you'll be ready to break, all right? If you know the song, sing it with me. When I remember what you've done for me, I'll never turn back anymore. When I remember what you've done for me, I'll never turn back anymore. No, 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 no. I'll never turn back anymore. No, 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 no. I'll never turn back anymore. Ready? Go get him, Potter's house.